2: I'm Julia Borston and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre Bosa has the morning off. Today, is it game over for Microsoft? The FTC suing the tech giant over that proposed $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard. What it means for the company and the rest of the tech sector. We'll turn to enterprise software later on and demand in the face of this uncertain economy. We'll check in with the CEOs of DocuSign and Procore. Sam Bankman-Fried says he's ready to testify after missing last night's deadline. The fallen crypto mogul says he is willing to speak to Congress next week, even if he doesn't have all the information that he'd like. Let's begin with Microsoft, though. As you know, the Federal Trade Commission suing to try and block its planned acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Microsoft had offered $68.7 billion for the video game developer in January, almost a year ago, with the intent of closing in June of next year. The FTC voted 3-1. to They issued the complaint. The Trump-appointed commissioner, Christine Wilson, voting no. FTC calls out anti-competitive behavior and specifically the recent announcement that Microsoft plans to make upcoming games from its 20th. 2021 acquisition ZeniMax Media exclusive to Xbox after assuring European antitrust authorities it would not. But Microsoft is not backing down. Brad Smith, another uh, response, quote, we have been committed since day one to addressing competition concerns, including by offering earlier this week proposed concessions to the FTC. While we've believed in giving peace a chance, we have complete confidence in our case and welcome the opportunity to present our case in court. Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick pushed back as well in a memo to employees, quote, the allegation that this deal is anti-competitive doesn't align with the facts and we believe we'll win this challenge. The complaint outlines a hearing in August, which, if it sticks, means any deal may need to be delayed. John, we've talked about it a lot so far this morning, and it actually takes us back to the day the deal was announced and that long window for closure sort of hinted that there would be
4: friction. The most interesting thing, Carl, about this potential deal and the friction over it to me is how much the environment has changed since Microsoft made this move in the first place. But first of all, I think it's important investors that need to remember, Microsoft doesn't need ATVI. It doesn't need to do this deal. It's a nice to have. Microsoft's also overpaying. I mean, let's just be frank about this. This is a price before uh, all kinds of valuations came down. But I think this has implications for Adobe Figma and you know how deals like that might get scrutinized going forward, and also we got to keep in mind, big acquisitions aren't always a lock. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, Salesforce deal with, if not digestion issues, retention issues certainly when it comes to talent. Well, now here for more on this blockbuster lawsuit, CNBC technology correspondent Steve Kovac. Steve. Um, I guess there were some rumors out that it might be two, two, but it's not. It's three, one with the Ftc saying not so fast, Microsoft.
5: Yeah, that's right. So it seems like more than expected are in line here with Lena Khan, John. And look, I've been reading through the lawsuit over the last since it dropped uh, yesterday afternoon. And one thing that's really interesting to me is how the FTC's suit tries to carve out like these very niche cases to make its point that this could maybe one day be a huge anti-competitive issue. For example they talk about Microsoft being only in the high end of the console market with another player, Sony, with the PlayStation. They ignore Nintendo. They say Nintendo doesn't even count as part of the console market. So they're going to have to prove that Nintendo isn't a console competitor with Microsoft and Sony. That's going to be tough to do. On top of that, they're going to have to prove that this really young uh, cloud gaming system that both Sony and Microsoft offer, actually Nintendo offers a similar subscription service, that that is going to be the future of gaming and people are going, that's where all the growth is gonna be, which Microsoft does believe by the way, but they're going to also have to prove that if that happens, Microsoft's going to have an unfair advantage there as well. And, of course, there's the whole thing with Call of Duty and making that exclusive and not. And we know, of course, Microsoft has been saying all along that they will make that available. They've even committed to putting it out there for 10 years on PlayStation, and Nintendo already agreed to that.
3: Steve, you know, John points out they don't need this deal. And I was just thinking about the Goldman note this morning in which they make Microsoft a top pick for next year with nary a mention of uh, Activision. They say management's going to guide revenue conservatively. They're going to focus on restrained expenses. That means better earnings growth, maybe uh, better than obviously the flat expectations for S&P.
5: Yeah, that's right. And you've got to keep in mind what everything else Microsoft is facing. They're facing potentially a weakened uh, market in enterprise spending. They're facing foreign exchange headwinds. Uh, you know, cloud growth is basically flat. So all that plays into this, too. But look, this could be a boost to a lot of those businesses as well. If they are allowed to take over Activision and buy that company, it does boost their cloud business. It boosts a lot of their other businesses, not just strictly the Xbox and gaming business.
4: All right. Steve Kovac, thank you. Meanwhile, Microsoft, not the only major tech name facing FTC scrutiny. Meta, also in the commission's crosshairs with a three-week trial over the company's latest VR deal, kicking off yesterday. Julia Borston has the latest. Julia.
2: Well, John, the FTC is accusing Meta of operating in a way that violates antitrust law in the Metaverse. Uh, It's a high-profile set of hearings they kicked off yesterday, and they will continue today and through next week. This is on the FTC's injunction to block Meta's acquisition of VR startup Within. Meta and the FTC are headed back to court in a couple of hours. Now, back in July, the FTC sued to block Meta's acquisition of Within, which operates the popular fitness app called Supernatural arguing that the deal will illegally boost Meta's market power in the future in the metaverse. The FTC claiming that Facebook is trying to create a monopoly in VR fitness apps and that Meta should be developing its own products. Facebook arguing that they don't have the capabilities to develop this kind of a fitness app on their own. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Meta CTO Andrew Bosworth, they call him Boz, are both expected to take the stand sometime Next week. Now, the outcome of this hearing could say a lot about the Biden administration and FTC Chief Lena Khan's ability to rein in big tech. Um, And if the FTC does succeed in blocking this deal, that really could have a chilling effect not only on Meta's interest and ability to pursue deals, but also on M&A at other companies, not just in the tech industry, but in media and other industries as well. Guys. Uh,
3: Julia, appreciate that. Uh, Julia Borston. for more on the suits and the state of tech M&A, let's bring in the Verge editor-in-chief and host of the Decoder podcast, CNBC contributor Nilay Patel. Uh, Nilay, let's talk, I guess, first about FTC uh, and whether or not you saw this coming from day one.
1: Yeah, I think everybody thought the FTC, particularly Lena Khan, uh, would file to block the Microsoft Activision deal. As soon as the EU actually did it and, you know, Put the injunction in place to stop the deal while they investigated. The FTC had tons of cover to do it. If they're gonna go sue Meta for the within acquisition, they, they had to go stop Activision. There's there's no other choice. It would be radically inconsistent, no matter the concessions Microsoft was offering. So I think this is the inevitable result. Everyone saw it coming. Microsoft is better at the political game. Brad Smith in particular, President of Microsoft, is great at it he has been leading up to in this moment, I'm ready with my give peace a chance tweet. He has offered all the concessions. He's gonna negotiate his way out of it as hard as he can.
4: Neil, the the part that seems kind of crazy to me is this meta within thing, right? Because the FTC is assuming that there is a market for the metaverse. I don't know know that many people (laughs) who are assuming that outside of Mark Zuckerberg and, and Facebook and meta. So it's like, you're gonna have a monopoly in this market that we're assuming is going to exist in five to ten years, I mean, it, it seems like a pretty easy case to make that that's regulatory overreach. I, I think you can make that case. I
1: think that's basically how Meta sees it. Here's a tiny little market where we're—they're the only player. Supernatural is great, actually. Can I just, uh, here's my plug for Supernatural. I had within CEO Chris Milk on the Decoder podcast, and we talked about the fact that fitness is a killer app for VR. If you haven't tried this game, go play it. It's like fun to work out. You like are basically dance fighting uh, with swords. It's amazing. It's Peloton for VR working out. And what he told me, Is that the user base for Supernatural is not has no overlap with the traditional VR user base, right? It's people thirty over forty over
4: traditional VR. Think about traditional traditional gamers. This is like it's young people, it's young men, Dungeons and Dragons of having a monopoly over half blood druid orcs. Like this is not a mainstream (laughs) thing that everybody's playing and working with, right? This is the argument. I'm just saying this is the argument. Supernatural's user
1: base is like. 50-50 50-50 men and women, 35 and over, right? And they're like, there's a burgeoning community there and it's growing and it's making people buy a Quest too. The traditional VR user base is like young men, right? So they're expanding the market with this one app. And I think the FTC is saying, well, hold on a minute. This is the only app that can expand the market that we've seen it. And Facebook is buying, or Meta is buying everything that might potentially expand the market. When other headsets come out, there are going to be no developers for them. I think that argument is a little bit of a stretch. On the flip side, that same argument is being applied to Activision Microsoft, narrowly focused on the high-end consoles, the PS5, the Xbox, S, and X. And they're saying Nintendo isn't the thing, because if you have an Xbox or PS5, it is very likely you also have a Switch. It is very unlikely you have the other high-performance console. And I think that's the narrow line the FTC is trying to walk. We'll just see if they can pull it off.
3: You know, I'm fascinated. I know. I know it's... Probably not the most material thing, but this line from Smith: "While we believed in giving peace a chance," I <laughs> wonder if you think that characterizes corporate America's sort of stance on a, a potential uh, anti-competitive regulation, and if in fact this is a turn—if we, if if we're going to start to see things get even more combative, even though in the past we have seen the likes of Meta try to take aim directly at Lena Khan.
1: Yeah. Well, Carl, I, I don't know if you caught this. The Give Peace of Chance line, that's the John Lennon quote. He tweeted out on the 42nd yeah. anniversary of Lennon's death. Like, uh, very well <laughs> done. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> second, you know, Microsoft is, is better at this than the other big tech companies, right? They're a massive government contractor. They've been embedded with the government for years and years. They are good at regulators around the world. I, I, I think the tenor of the we're going to fight this from them is going to be less you know, just bruised knuckles than maybe the other tech giants are going to do. And I think you can already see that to some extent with Apple, right? Apple is, ha- they- they're just doing encryption, even though the FBI does not want them to do it. Hmm. They are going to fight tooth and nail against the App Store antitrust bills. They're fighting tooth and nail against Epic. They're not shy. They're like, this is dumb. This is stupid. We're Apple. We're stopping it. I think Microsoft's going to play it a little more calmly. But fundamentally, what you have is Lena Khan and her FTC trying to push the boundary of antitrust law kind of back to where it was pre-Reagan. Okay. And that's so, a big deal. And I think Microsoft is saying, wait, under the existing law,
4: this is allowed. And you want us to go backwards. So is this a bellwether case? Does Adobe need to be bracing itself uh, for, for a fight on Figma? Yes, I think absolutely. Uh, and I, I, honestly, that
1: deal to me is more concerning. Um, you know. Also, I had <laughs> big CEO Dylan Field on Decoder. You can go listen to that conversation. He's like, "Yeah, we kind of did it for the money, right?" Like he's like, "Here are the frameworks we think we can make impact." But Adobe showed up with a huge amount of money, and that was the first thing we thought of, right? The monetary impact of the company would be huge. I think that like what you want in these markets is competition, and I think when you look at some of the big deals in the past, especially the vertical content distribution deals, they're disasters. They're disasters for employees, they're disasters for shareholders, they're disasters for the company. Just look at AT AT&T Time Warner. Look at the disaster that caused for Time Warner and the disaster continues to be because of the debt loads incurred by these deals on these companies that should be iconic American companies. And I think fundamentally, we have to reckon with the idea that sometimes these vertical mergers, even if, the regulatory environment has allowed them for a long time. They do not actually result in value for the companies, value for the shareholders, and values for the thousands of employees who usually end up getting fired.
3: That's a good point. Uh, by the way, uh, in November, five $10 billion plus MA and a deals uh, worldwide. And that did snap a streak of five straight months in which we had fewer than two, two or fewer than that. And I wonder if you think we're going to does that does that put a sort of a, a pin in any hopes that we're going to get an acceleration in big-scale M&A?
1: Yeah, I think fundamentally, Lena khan has got to win some of these cases, right? And the, the one I would point to, it's, it's not really tech, right, is uh, Penguin, Random House, Simon & Schuster. They filed to stop it. Those companies dropped the deal. That would have been a big deal that would have led to a lot of consolidation in the books market. They stopped it, and she didn't have to go win in court. She said, I'm filing the case, and the companies walked away. The deal fell apart. But she hasn't won one of these big cases where the law actually changed, where the courts actually agree with her theory of how antitrust law should be applied. And I think Activision, when you call it a bellwether, this is the one where the theory is going to get most directly applied. Should we stop vertical mergers that are mostly allowed because you're not consolidating horizontally across markets, you're not reducing options for the consumer, the PlayStation will still exist. It'll just be less valuable because the content won't be there. And I think Microsoft is going to come back and say, look, for us, this deal is not really about consoles. This deal is about mobile, where we're not a player. And what we want to buy is Candy Crush. And you can see how you can hmm. carve up a company and get to a settlement from that point of view. But I think Lena Khan wants to win one of these big cases and actually reshape the law.
3: Yeah, uh, we're going to see how how resolute both sides are. And you like good weekend. Great to see
4: you. Thanks for the help today. You help. Up next, the CEOs of DocuSign and Procore, plus Taiwan Semiconductor seeing a big boost. We'll break down why TechCheck is just getting started.
6: From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away?
3: Let's take a look at the latest in the FTX saga today. Sam Bankman-Fried taking to Twitter this morning, agreeing to testify before the House Financial Services Committee next Tuesday after missing yesterday's deadline to respond to the Senate Banking Committee requesting testimony at an upcoming hearing. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong pulling no punches on SBF, asking, quote, why is he getting treated with kid gloves? In a podcast interview with Strategery's Ben Thompson, all this as the SEC publishes a new notice asking companies to share their exposure to distressed crypto firms following the collapse of FTX. John, uh, definitely going to be interesting to see if The Hill can add anything to what SBF already told Andrew at the deal book the other day.
4: Yeah. And, and what he's putting out in DMs. And I mean, he's, boy, he's on a media tour that, that continues. I'm sure his lawyers have feelings about that. I find it interesting, Carl, the way the internal politics and dynamics of the crypto community. I mean, you know, uh, Binance and CZ versus FTX, you know, uh, Brian Armstrong. I mean, there's a lot of eating of young going on. I, I, I would hope that this self-policing would happen before investors lose huge amounts of money and, and possibly get defrauded. Like, I, I hope they start pointing out who's not great among them before everybody knows it. That would, I yeah. think that would be helpful. They, ha- they have definitely not circled the wagons uh, on this one, John, that's for sure. Well, you know, and the, the wagons seem to be circled until it's obvious that they have to toss somebody out. Um, I'm mixing metaphors there, maybe. <laughs> Outside of the circle of wagons? Okay, I guess it works. All right, let's turn now to DocuSign. Take a look. The top gainer on the NASDAQ 100 after delivering a beat across the board in Q3, raising guidance, heading into year end. Joining us now for a closer look at the quarter, DocuSign's new CEO, uh, Alan his first broadcast interview since taking over the company in October. Great to have you. So um, what, what really was the cause of the outperformance here? Some of these international partner deals, why did the business look better than the projections?
7: Well, you know, I think it was a very solid quarter across the board for the company. And I think it reflects both uh, the stable uh, demand environment we face as well as the stabilization internally. You know, there's been quite a bit of turmoil at Docson over the last year. And uh, I think we now have a new leadership team in place. They've been in the saddle for a couple of quarters and and they're doing a great job, I think leading each of the functions. Uh, so I'm very pleased with, uh, with the operational rigor and predictability that we were able to demonstrate in Q3 and hope it continues into Q4.
4: Well, the real estate market has shown some volatility, overall business activity as well. How much of a threat did those macro uh, impacts pose to your business in calendar 23? Yeah, so I think we
7: are uh, taking a a muted look based on on the macro environment overall. And as you point out, we we did have a a strong business in the real estate space. A lot of that, uh, the decline in the volume uh, in real estate transactions and mortgage transactions has already occurred. And so that's sort of in the baseline, if you will. Uh, and we're seeing strength in, in other sectors, uh healthcare, retail, manufacturing, uh, that's balancing it out. We have a very diversified customer portfolio.
4: On gross margins, they came in above the streets, expectations above guidance. Is that a sticky impact? Is that going to stay that way or does your spending have to come up or do you fear that uh, the top line is going to come down in a way that's going to threaten that?
7: Well, we, we are aiming to uh, you know reach our, our long-term guidance of producing you know, 20, 25% operating income. And so we, we took steps to, to get into that position. Um, and I expect that we will continue to do that into 2023.
3: Alan, uh, you were quoted as saying, I believe it's important to acknowledge where we have not executed well. Obviously, I didn't join to run a lower mid-single-digit revenue company, so I'm pushing very hard to get to a different place. Uh, can you talk about what you would have done differently had you been in place before?
7: Yeah, I think. Look, it, it's hard when a company has the kind of of uh, tailwinds that DocuSign had during the pandemic. It it becomes a, a mad scramble to just try to fulfill every order, and that can become a distraction from longer term activity. And I think that's partly what happened to DocuSign. Took our eye off the ball a little bit on on both product development, on on maturing uh, our internal processes, on you know, managing our, our sales and marketing investment. And so uh, th- that's a hard thing to manage through that, that type of volatility. I think key areas that, that uh, we haven't emphasized as much in the past that I'm pushing on, uh, one is really to improve our digital self-service motions so that customers of all sizes can place new orders, upgrade any DocuSign products online. That'll both be an improvement to our customer experience and create operational efficiency. I talked a little about the roadmap. Uh, We we think we can go significantly broader. If you think about agreements, uh, what we did was we automated, essentially, the signing of existing forms. But when things move to digital, that's not usually where things stop. All aspects of agreements, developing them, negotiating them, agreeing on them, and then managing them, I think are ripe for uh, improvement, uh, and we intend to focus on that.
4: You were at Google on the business side for more than a decade. You're talking about digital self-service. Google pioneered a lot of that. Tell me um, how much of what you did there is relevant and transferable?
7: Well, I think uh, at Google, we were able to bring advertisers of all sizes from the very smallest, maybe spending $100 a month to the very largest, spending $100 million plus a month self-serve through our interface. So that can be done and uh, I, I believe DocuSign should be able to replicate that. Uh, another area that, that I took away from Google was we had an incredibly diversified broad customer base, again from the very smallest to the very largest. And having that diversified, uh, should we say, bench of customers and that broad appeal, it was very much an attraction for me coming to DocuSign and something I think we can continue to leverage.
4: All right. Alan Teguison. CEO of DocuSign. Thank you. Thank you. JP Morgan today, bullish on chips,
3: going into 2023, naming analog devices, microchip, Marvell, among some of their top picks. Pretty interesting framework as to why that uh, group may outperform. We'll talk about it after a quick break.
8: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click Rider's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at Canva.com. Designed for work.
3: Canva. In a moment, we're going to break down some of the opportunities that may lie ahead buying the semis. But first, a news update with RK Rooney. Hey, Kate.
8: Hey, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Wholesale prices rose three-tenths of a percent in November. That was more than expected. But year-over-year, wholesale inflation fell 7.4 percent, dropping for a fifth month in a row. Gas prices sank, but the cost of food and services rose. Consumer sentiment is up more than forecasted, helped by inflation expectations, dropping to a 15-month low. University of Michigan index jumped More than two points to 59.1. Economists had expected it to be roughly unchanged. And a House report says major oil and gas companies, including Chevron and BP, are making only symbolic investments in addressing climate change. Instead, their focus is on maintaining oil and gas use long into the future. No Republicans signed the report. One said the probe into oil companies was done to create, quote, partisan theater. And finally, Taylor Swift is branching out yet again. Variety reports she's going to be directing her first feature film for Searchlight Pictures. She also reportedly wrote that screenplay. Looking forward to that one. Back to you guys.
3: Is there anything she cannot do, Kate? We'll find out. Uh, Kate, thank you very much. Uh, Let's get to the chips. As promised, shares of Broadcom getting a nice boost today after the company reported better-than-expected results for the third quarter. Pretty upbeat outlook. And Taiwan semi-bucking the slump, a 50% revenue jump in November, thanks in part to Apple's orders for those high-end iPhones. Our next guest is pretty bullish on the space, as the inventory correction may present some buying opportunities. Here to discuss this morning uh, the outlook for chips and broader tech, BMO chief investment. Strategist Young Yu Ma, Young Yu, great to have you back. Uh, We put together a few nice data points there between uh, Taiwan and
9: uh, and what Broadcom said. Do you think that builds? Those are some nice data points, and does point to some of the end market dispersion. Although we have an inventory overhang that a lot of people are worried about, there are some areas that are doing well, and we think overall that's going to offset some of the weaker areas. And probably investors really want to be positioned into the end markets that remain strong. Uh, And there are some healthy end markets still. So I think that's the data points that we're seeing, along with pretty reasonable valuations when you look at Broadcom and some other technology stocks.
3: I did read a note uh, from uh, someone else on the street. I think it's JPM. Long-term investors should not lose sight of the multi-year, three, five, 10, 15-year track records of performance. I mean, should we start thinking that way again, or are you too leery uh, to to go long-term right now?
9: I think for the end markets that we think are going to hold up well, we should be thinking that way, because we do see reasonable valuations that have come down a lot in these spaces. And we do think there's going to be an economic soft landing. So even with somewhat of an inventory correction, we expect uh, the industrial sector to hold up. We expect autos, especially EV, to hold up. Aerospace and defense, cloud computing, artificial intelligence. You really want to be geared toward those end markets, which have a lot of runway multi-year trends, ahead of them. So it is a good time to start uh, thinking about that and picking up those names that play into that.
4: Young-Yu, how much attention should we pay to the fact that Hock was not tipping his hand at all when it comes to expectations for calendar 23? Um, You know, when it comes to how much growth there will be, he was very reticent. And we've got this inventory situation that we keep talking about. How clear is it how much of that's going to be out of the way by the time we're in 23? Well, that's what's interesting, right? Typically, when you get that kind of
9: response or that kind of prevarication, uh, the market doesn't take that well, right? But uh, the market, given everything else that's going on, given the strong guidance, at least for next quarter, given the uh, increase in dividend and given the low valuation, I think when we balance these things out and start thinking about longer term, uh, we can still be reasonably comfortable with some of these names that play in the strong end market. So, no, no, you'd like to hear more clarity, but nonetheless, uh, I, I think the market's getting this right.
3: Uh, that said, it does sound like you maybe are reserving some caution for consumer-led end markets, especially given some of the inventories we've been watching in hardware.
9: That's right. I mean, we do have... We if we do want to be re- respective of the idea that inventories are high in some of the areas for semiconductors and some of the end markets are softening and probably going to soften for a couple more quarters still. So the consumer-led areas, uh, you know, they play into areas such as uh, PCs, they play into TVs, uh, playing to ga- consumer gadgets. Uh, we think those might still have more correcting to do. But even within that, there's some dispersion because as we saw from Taiwan Semi, uh, the high-end smartphones are doing well. So, you know, you really want to think about what end markets look like they're holding up well and think about where the dispersion is
4: going to be. How how complete do you think this valuation reset in semis really is, though? Like, if you are taking a longer-term, multi-year view, historically speaking, is this a decent entry point or is this still a little on the richer side where we could bounce around about here for a few years depending on how the overall market feels, even if these companies do continue to do pretty well? Well, I think
9: it's a decent entry point, but that is predicated on the idea that we're expecting an economic soft landing. Uh, If it turns out there's a deeper recession next year, uh, then that could have a ways to go still. But in our soft landing scenario, which we do think is the base case, a lot of end markets are going to hold up well, and we do think uh, this would represent a good entry point.
3: Finally, you know, I I wonder what you make of, I, I, I couldn't, Help but notice uh, some of Broadcom's commentary. We've talked to se- we've talked to multiple CIOs at the largest enterprise customers we have. We've not seen them talk about a reduction in their IT spend. How do you reconcile commentary like that with uh, discussion about longer lead times, more deal scrutiny from, say, enterprise hardware?
9: Yeah, it, that's right. We're seeing some mixed signals out there, and uh, what exactly to make of it? I, I think if we kind of net all of those things out, we can think that there's probably going to be some softness uh, at the margin, but that a lot of companies are still positioning for the longer term. And even if there is uh, some slowdown in economic growth over the next few quarters, uh, that that longer term eye is what companies are focusing on. And, and that's probably what's coming out in some of those comments. So, yeah, we're getting mixed signals, but overall, uh, if there is a soft landing, which we expect, we think the economy will stabilize in 2023.
3: Yeah, of course, you uh Inflation and rates remain a wild card, which uh, is going to be uh, the topic of discussion for, for many quarters. Young Yu, thanks so much. Good to see
4: you again. Young Yu Ma. Thanks, Goldman names Microsoft as one of its top defensive stocks heading into 2023, thanks to strong enterprise exposure and retention metrics. It also highlights other cloud players, including Intuit, ServiceNow, and Workday. We're going to look closer into the FTC's lawsuit against Microsoft in just a couple minutes. Stay with us. Let's get another touch on the Microsoft Activision
3: story, the FTC slewing to block that deal. Our Kayla Taush is looking at this from the administration's perspective and what might possibly come next, Kayla.
0: Well, Carl, the Biden administration's antitrust cops have pledged an aggressive approach in challenging deals that consolidate direct competitors, as well as suppliers or complementary companies. These so-called vertical deals like Microsoft's purchase of Activision. But U.S. courts haven't bought those arguments in recent weeks, dealing the agencies a series of setbacks, with federal judges disagreeing with the agencies on deals by Illumina, United Healthcare, U.S. Sugar, and Booz Allen Hamilton and agreeing with concerns on the merger of Penguin and Simon & Schuster, but certainly the record in recent months, does not favor the FTC or the DOJ. Even so, FTC Chair Liana Khan and her Department of Justice counterpart Jonathan Cantor have told Congress that improving antitrust enforcement won't happen unless they're willing to challenge more and more deals, and they praised a range of outcomes as successes. We are pursuing robust and vigorous law enforcement to protect the American public from unlawful mergers and illegal conduct. We've enjoyed significant success, with at least six mergers being abandoned due to an FTC lawsuit. We are committed to protecting Americans wherever we see harm in unlawful conduct, In at least two cases, litigation alone caused companies to drop their pursuit of mergers. Lockheed Martin dropped its $4 billion bid for Aerojet, and NVIDIA abandoned its deal for Arm Holdings in 2021. But Activision CEO Bobby Kotick wrote employees yesterday saying he's confident this deal will close. So while the FTC appears unfazed by some of its recent challenges, John, uh, the companies are not phased either by this lawsuit.
4: Kayla, to what degree do you think this signals a less cautious FTC and companies should expect a fight even if the FTC isn't sure it can win?
0: Well, like you just heard from FTC Chair Lena Khan and like both she and Cantor have told Congress, it doesn't necessarily matter if they win some of these cases, just the threat of litigation, how costly, how uncertain it is for these companies can cause them to walk away from some of these deals. And they've praised their teams for outstanding work in that regard and said that even that outcome is a success.
4: Yeah, I just wonder if once companies figure out that maybe they're bluffing, they won't walk away as easily. Yeah. Taylor, thank you. Walmart entering the buy now, pay later space. The information reporting the retailer is planning to launch its own installment loan service through its strategic partnership with Rivet Capital. That stock is down about a percent this morning. A firm down about a percent and a half. We'll be right back.
2: Let's get a gut check on Netflix. That stock is up about 5.5% today. The streaming giant getting an upgrade to overweight from Wells Fargo and Cowan naming the stock their top large cap pick for 2023. Cowan calls Netflix the best, quote, recession play in their coverage and raises their price target to $405 from 340 saying the new lower-priced ad tier could accelerate Netflix's subscriber growth. Wells Fargo upgrading Netflix shares to overweight and raising their price target as well, also saying the ad tier will drive subs and ramp up revenue growth in 2023. Netflix is one of the top gainers on the Nasdaq 100 this morning. Carl.
3: All right, Julia, speaking of Netflix, uh, the streaming giant Spotify-inspired miniseries The Playlist is on deck for our latest binge. The show explores how Spotify revolutionized the music industry and is told through the lens of six different characters, including co-founder and CEO Daniel Ek. I asked the creative team behind the docudrama what it is about the tech founder character that captivates Hollywood and audiences. (laughs) all the sort of business stories told creatively. Uber, for example, and Travis Kalanick. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg's had his treatment. What is it about creating a business and disrupting a technology that just is naturally narrative?
10: parallel and I, in our discussions from early on, we identified this talent that we felt Eck had, which It must be integral, I think, to so many successful entrepreneurs, but that isn't discussed that much, which is to be an amazing spotter of talent. He seemed to have a real gift for finding the right guy and empowering that person and and really allowing them to sort of run with an idea. And that seemed to be a huge strength of Spotify. It's never the work of just one single individual. It's always that synthesis between one person's vision and a lot of other talents. What's narrative about it? It's the tension between where an entrepreneur, a visionary, thinks he's going to end up and where he actually does end up. If there's a theme that undercuts the whole show for me, it's that change is never quite what you expect. For each of the characters, for Eck, for the music industry, for the artists, Spotify brings massive change, but it's not what they expect. And when people have to face what they don't expect, there's always a great story.
3: You can catch the full uncut interview with uh, Christian and Perloff uh, on our live stream after the show, 12 p.m. Eastern time on TechCheck's Twitter, or LinkedIn page, John. Uber's had their turn. WeWork, obviously Apple. Uh, Now it's Spotify's. And by the way, we haven't really mentioned the strength in Netflix shares as um, we got Wells going to overweight and increasing their price target
4: by 100 bucks, largely because they argue the content is back. Uh, Indeed. And Binge is back as well. Can't wait. Carl, thanks. Coming up next, the CEO of Procore joins us on how enterprise demand within specific industries is holding up in this market downturn. TechCheck is back in just a couple of moments. Let's take a closer look at enterprise software. Despite slowing business demand, we've seen strength in DevOps tools that make developers more efficient and a few companies that solve industry-specific problems like construction management provider Procore they're performing better than expected. With global construction spend estimated to reach $15 trillion by 2030, does Procore have upside in today's market? Joining us now, an exclusive interview, Procore's founder and CEO, Tui Cordomage. Uh, Tui, good to see you. So um, 35% growth you've been pushing, um, I think about eight times forward revenue is where you're trading, but what, what are customers demanding perhaps that's different or what's the use case um, for the software that's different in this period? Is it more tilted toward efficiency?
11: Yeah, so it definitely is. The uh, I've, I've been spending a tremendous amount of time on the road lately with our customers, and the focus today is, is to drive efficiencies into the business. So first and foremost, adopting a platform like Procore gives them the ability to Basically, run more efficient businesses. Uh, But beyond that, there's a a significant focus on pre-construction because you can imagine during the construction process, if you make mistakes up front, they actually cost you a lot downstream. So focusing on pre-construction and then leveraging data from a platform like Procore enables our customers to run better businesses and to actually deliver better outcomes. Now,
4: it seems like a lot of commercial construction starting to slow down Infrastructure spending overall, though pretty strong. So as customers try to balance that, is it important for them to be able to figure out time to value? Is that a calculation that they can do with the spend uh, up front on Procore? Are you pressured Uh, to move to more consumption in order to enable that?
11: Oh, the, the so the industry definitely is going from analog to digital, and it's very inefficient today. So uh, it makes a ton of sense, you know, today for a customer, for a prospect to become a customer of Procore because of the efficiencies that we drive. But one thing that you did say early in that. Question was: Our customers run diversified portfolios, so even though they may be struggling in one particular sector like housing, a lot of our customers have multiple segments that they serve, so they have they're very diversified and they are not they're not focused on one particular sector.
4: So, what do you do with your own cost to be able to lean into that growth and keep it going in yeah. a downturn? Is it more sales and marketing spend? Is it more partners, uh, either large technology companies or ISVs within the industry that you have to team up with?
11: It's, it's kind of all across the board. We have, uh, we, we, are, uh, we have a mantra at Procore, efficient growth, so we're focusing very heavily on efficiencies while maintaining our growth, uh, but it does take all of those levers and more in order for you know, us to be successful. The, uh, also we run a global business, so uh, different markets, you have to apply different uh, techniques in order to have your go-to-market be effective, so uh, we have a very uh, comprehensive go-to-market strategy globally.
3: It's interesting. You mentioned housing. But one thing we're we're quite curious about is the impact of, say, the infrastructure spending bill. Uh, You talk about uh, net new organic customers in the quarter. Are you seeing that sort of that spread diversify? And do you think the policy's driving some of it?
11: Yeah. So uh, again, the best mental model is uh, there are lots of sectors and uh, infrastructure uh, is definitely a big piece of it. Uh, and so yes, our customers that do infrastructure as well as other sectors are focusing more and more on infrastructure because they have the $1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure bill that came out is really going to help kind of hyper start that segment. Uh, so yeah, our customers are, are naturally gravitating towards that, uh, which is also great for Procore because those projects tend to be very large and long term.
4: How closely are you watching your uh, cash position? I know you're not projecting profitability for uh, quite a few quarters out, but um, as you're managing that, how does that affect your strategy and even your ability to do m and
11: well, we're very confident that we have a uh, you know a very strong cash cash position right now, uh, and and frankly, we're not as focused on M and A as we are right now on on executing on the uh, you know on the opportunity that we have in front of us. So it's it's an area where we're just confident that we're in a, we're in a great position, and we are driving efficient growth. So the efficiencies are being delivered to the bottom line. Uh, we did a very uh, we we delivered gr- a very strong growth in Q three, but also um, uh, efficiently, uh, and and our bottom line was looking really really strong. So we're moving in that direction.
4: All right, good to see you. Tui Cordemash, founder and CEO of Procore. Thank you.
3: If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere you are, wherever you download podcasts. TechCheck is back after one more quick break. One more thing before we go. Tesla stock ticking up this morning after falling by double digits this week. The electric car maker stock has fallen over doubts about its Model Y production. And today, Reuters does report that Model Y output at Shanghai will fully shut down from Christmas through New Year's. Stock has lost nearly half its market value year to date. John, uh, interesting note out of Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley today, basically arguing that we're witnessing the biggest shift from auto oversupply to undersupply inline vehicles pretty much in a generation. And that's leading a lot to consider the prospect of double digit, probably maybe 20% declines in at least used cars next year.
4: Yeah, all that being said, though, there have been so many cycles of doubt about Tesla, and so many times that we've had people say, oh, competition's coming. But Tesla's still Tesla. Uh, who knows whether this time will be different? But, you know, hey, beware out there, everybody who's counting on uh, this to be Tesla's last stand. And speaking of last stand predictions, looking ahead to next week, we're set to hear from Oracle on earnings, which people have been saying to me for 20 years is on its way out, but it continues to get stronger. And Adobe as well, those two big names reporting off cycle. Carl, I think Oracle in particular is gonna be so important because it's such a database enterprise software power. And we saw such strong numbers from MongoDB, a database upstart.
3: Yeah, we'll be looking for them to to ratify uh, some views one way or the other. The other uh, batch of news we'll get will come from analyst meetings, John. Delta, Lilly, and Intel, all with uh, analyst get-togethers. Obviously, CPI is going to be in there, and then central banks, not just the Fed, but the ECB and the BOE uh, coming off of that hotter-than-expected BPI, which threw futures for a loop earlier this morning. but. We have recovered just a bit, back to 39.75. Uh, Dow in the green as well, up 45 points. Have a
2: great weekend, everybody. We'll see you Monday. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.